Hello, welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja, and in this episode, I'll briefly introduce Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. I'll provide a brief summary of the novel, some major themes that it covers, and talk about the main framing and setting of the novel. Mostly, my analysis would be guided by post-colonial studies and post-colonial theory, and I also already have another episode that covers as to how Chenwa Achebe has responded to this novel and how I also sometimes teach this novel as an example of literary racism. I hope you listen to that as well. Now, this lecture in a slightly different form is also available on my YouTube channel. But here we go, a conversation about Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. By the way, if you're hearing any noises in the background or some sounds, I'm recording this in my backyard. And I'm surrounded by a couple of cats and our chickens. Uh, we live in the country, so please do forgive those noises. I kind of find them endearing. So, going back to the novel, Heart of Darkness, Conrad published it in 1899. Now, it wasn't an accidental publication. He had actually gone to Africa, traveled up the Congo River in a steamboat, taken copious notes. So. There was a lot of intention involved in writing the novel. Now, if you have read your Conrad, you know that his earlier novels were set in in Malay archipelago, right? So dealt with Dutch colonialism and, uh, for example, Lord James and Almere's Folly. That was his first novel. Like most of his other novels, this novel was also first published as a serialized novel in a journal and then was eventually published as one volume. Now this is a novella, it's a short novel with three chapters, not very long. So if you just want to know the plot of the novel, the plot of the novel is that Marlowe, who's our narrator, gets the commission to go to Congo and ply a steamboat. As a steamboat captain, his job is to go up the Congo River and deliver supplies But in the story that he tells, he just makes one trip up the river Congo to retrieve one of the field agents whose name is Kurtz. And then the story ends while he's back from his trip and he's in London meeting Curtis's fiancée. That's roughly the plot of the novel and that's the story that Marlowe tells. Now, how the story is staged, how the story is told, that's really important. And of course, most importantly, the character of Kurtz, who is much written about, much talked about, and much emulated in other stories of the same kind. And then, of course, there is the question of Congo itself, how it came to be like it was in the novel, but in real political world. And for that, we have to dig some more you know, background information. So let's talk about Congo first and how did it come to be the sole property of King Leopold II of Belgium and then 
go from there because that will have a bearing upon our understanding of the now. So the colonization of Congo and its peculiar colonization is connected to the 1884 Berlin Conference. Now this conference was called by Bismarck, the Chancellor of Germany, and all major European powers attended that meeting. And the reason they attended that meeting was that increasingly the conflicts over colonial territories in Africa were increasing, and what Bismarck, while asserting his own national you know, power, wanted to accomplish was to reach an agreement with other European powers and to divide Africa amongst themselves. So that is what we call the high phase of colonialism, where the Europeans just assume that they can sit and actually literally divide territories amongst themselves on a map, right? And by that time, until 1884, you know, only about 10% of Africa was colonized along the coast. But after the Berlin Conference, every European colonial power has their own territories in Africa. And during that conference, King Leopold II, who had established a sort of Congo Reform Council, so under the garb of I will do good works in Congo, he was able to get Congo as his own individual colonial territory. It wasn't owned by his country. He himself was the sole owner of that colonial territory. And that's how Congo ended up being a directly controlled territory of King Leopold II. Leopold II then appoints his own people, his own managers, his own governors in the area who implement the law as mandated by the king and not by the parliament of Belgium and that is what makes Congo a peculiar colonial situation and the king just uses his power to extract tin and ivory from Congo and does nothing to improve the lives of the natives there are no roads built no educational system introduced it was colonization in its most naked and brutal form, right? And that's what makes Congo peculiar amongst all the other African colonized territories. And after the Berlin Conference, which is also called Scramble for Africa or Conquest of Africa, pretty much all territories of Africa are colonized except for Ethiopia and Liberia, I think. Rest, all the countries are divided amongst various European powers. Now, Heart of Darkness is the story of Christopher of Marlowe's journey up the Congo River. Now, Congo is one of the longest rivers in the world. I'm forgetting the ranking of it, but it is amongst the great rivers of the world, right? And it starts way in the interior of Africa and goes all the way to the ocean, right? And it is a wild river still, and at places it is one of the deepest rivers in the world. So that's the peculiarity of Congo, and that's what Conrad represents. So by the time we get to the story, do keep in mind that the way Congo is set up at that time 
is through trading posts. There are interior trading posts and then there are camps which supply them. The camps are along the Congo River. The trading posts are mostly manned by a trading agent who is responsible for his post. His job is to collect the ivory and pass it on down the river to the main camps. It's a business venture, so the more ivory you collect, the more commission you get. So it's, it's a brutal business model in which the most prized position that any employee of the company in Congo wants is that of the field trading post agent in charge of a trading post because that has the most profit, but also that gives them the chance to move upward in the hierarchy of the company. So that's the structure. Within that work, the natives are constantly being worked. They are part of the forced labor. They are being brutalized and they are being maltreated and mistreated by these trading post people, but also by the police force that the managers have created. So the sense of justice is arbitrary and that is the most terrifying situation in, given in any colonial situation. And that's also what makes Congo peculiar as a colonial territory. So these are all the things to keep in mind, the scramble for Africa, the peculiar nature of Congo, the place of Congo River within the economy of Congo Basin, and the greed for ivory and its demand in Europe. These are the things that inform the novel either directly or indirectly and also how the natives are being treated. Now, Conrad will deal with all these things, but he will set up a narrative strategy and a plot. And it's important for us to take a look at it as to why he does that and how he does that. And then towards the end, I'll go into a post-colonial reading of the novel because according to us, those of us who delve into post-colonial readings of canonical novels, there are a lot of things that we point out about the inherent racism of colonialism and exploitation that many traditional scholars probably will not dwell on. So let's go on to the setting of the novel, the framing of the novel, and how the story is staged, and then we'll go beyond that. So in the very beginning of the novel, we are on a merchant ship which is on its way out to the ocean from River Thames. And the ship has to wait for the tide to rise. And that's where the main narrator of the novel tells us about the ship itself, right? and tells us also about how tame the river is, right? And uh, he tells us who's on the deck and they are, he's thinking about the city in the background and the ocean in the front. And that is when Marlowe enters the story, right? Marlowe's first sentence is, this too was once one of the wild places of the world. So immediately we are put in a comparative frame. Because what Marlowe is saying is, look, this river that is now so tame that we can take our ships out into the ocean from it, and which is an artery that provides everything to the city of London and beyond, 
was once a wild place. Think of the Romans when they came here. What would a Roman officer think for them? It was a far-flung area of the world, right? And then Marlowe gives us his thoughts about how he always liked the blank places on the map and he always wanted to travel. Then the main narrator tells us a little more about Marlowe, that Marlowe was a sailor, but he was also a gentleman, that he always had a way of telling a story. And that is there, as they are waiting, Marlowe takes on the story and tells them, okay, let me tell you, remember when I was laid off a few years ago and I had to get another job, so I finally asked my aunts to help me, and they got me a job at this steamboat, and I traveled to Congo, right? And as he's beginning his story, he also creates this comparative description of colonialism, in which what he describes as efficient with a system and ideology is what we could construe is the British colonialism. And then he says, now let me tell you the story of the most brutal form of it, and that is when I went to Congo. So this framing, two narrators, right? And then this juxtaposition of the tame England and an efficient colonial system with the story of a brutal colonial system is read and I usually read it as a defensive device by Conrad, because Conrad is Polish, he is not yet a British citizen. So obviously he's not gonna give us an open critique of British colonialism, but he is going to give us a critique of a kind of colonialism which is in Congo. Now this also launches another whole philosophical debate and you can read the book which is called King Leopold's Ghost, in which the author basically tells us is that this trope of invoking the most atrocious kind of policies, right, to justify other policies that might not be atrocious is, is often used in, in, in colonial narratives and in colonial justifications, right? But this framing two narrators, a juxtaposition of one form of colonialism with another is what sets the stage for the brutal story that Marlowe is going to tell us. Now there is foreshadowing from the very beginning. As Marlowe goes to the company to get his commission, we are led to believe that this is not really a very professionally run enterprise. There are women knitting in the front office. And that as he's given his commission to go, there is a brooding feeling in the room as if he is going on a mission where he's not likely to you know, come back from. Then he goes for his physical and the doctor mushes his skull and everything else. And there is an inkling or there is an understanding that something happens to men who go to Congo. And so the doctor is doing kind of his research as to what are their, you know, physical state, what is their physical state before they leave. And then when they come back, you know, what kind of physiological changes are there. So there is some foreshadowing. And then Marlowe tells us the story of his journey to Africa, right? And we, uh, it's kind of telescoped, and then he gets on show. So first part of the novel, part one, is where he gets to the first trading station, first main station, 
and he describes the main station to us and the people that he encounters especially the accountant right in his starched shirts and everything else and that you know he finds out that he has to trek to the main station in the middle right about 60 miles i think along with a bunch of people who are there to get rich and they are called the eldorado expedition and quite a few of them die in the process but what marlow also gives us is the first impression of the africans like they are represented to us as these shadowy figures they are starving right and the vocabulary that is employed is highly racist right because they are represented as less than human but then marlow also kind of tells us that he also saw a sort of kinship with them but what we get is that the europeans themselves are a despicable lot they are not very well organized this is a shoddy affair and then within that the natives are absolutely being used for hard labor and they are being worked to death right that's the image we get at the first station and then when he gets to the main station that's where he has to stay the longest because the boat that he was supposed to captain is sunk right so he has to retrieve the boat and fix it before he can go up the river and now that section also is interesting because there is the character of the station manager he's the only one who is not sick not ill he has a very strong constitution and one of the members of the eldorado expedition is his uncle and in this section we also hear a conversation that marlow overhears between the uncle and the station manager and the crux of that is that they both don't think that it is in their best interest if kurtz was to come back now remember the figure of the kurtz is being built up everyone is telling marlow how brilliant kurtz is that he is the best agent that he will rise in the company there is kind of a legend of kurtz so that conversation that marlow overhears kind of indicates to him that there is more than just what appears going on right and that is that these people don't want kurtz to come back and the whole purpose of fixing the boat is to go and retrieve kurtz because they know that he is ill right now another thing that comes across very clearly in this whole second part is marlow's critique of the europeans there because most of them are wasting their time they're all waiting to be assigned to a trading post but they don't really know how to survive in nature right and a lot of them are dying because of illness and sickness and he also learns that everyone thinks that he is a company spy that he's there to report on them so everyone wants to know what his observations are what is he going to pass on to the company so here they are in africa in congo where all these people led by their greed are trying to serve this company but they have also brought along with them the kind of office intrigues that we see in real life or maybe in the companies or even in academia so so that is already there in africa as well now another thing that marlow keeps talking about is that all he needs at the end to fix the boat is rivets right a bag of rivets but it never seems to 
awry. And first he thinks that it's because the system is inefficient, the people are not professional enough. But after he hears that conversation, there is a sense that maybe that delay is intentional so that he doesn't get to Kurtz in time and that way Kurtz will be out of the way and the manager, the station manager, probably will be able to take his place. And since he already has a strong constitution, he might even survive the whole ordeal and maybe rise higher in the ranks. Now, in this section also, we get more and more impressions and images and representations of the native Africans, right? And they are all represented to us as as a group, as a collectivity who are being, you know, mistreated, who are malnourished, who are starving, and who are dying of illness. And that is a sympathetic representation, but nowhere do we encounter a native character who comes to us as a living, breathing, rational human being, right? The best that Marlowe can do for us is to at least share in sympathy that they were being mistreated. And this is crucial because as we go to the critiques of the novel, this representation of Africans as less than human, as silent, as having no language of their own is crucial and is highly racist, right? But we have to remember this because when we come back to that kind of analysis, the post-colonial analysis of the novel, that will be really important. So then most of the actions happens or the climax of the story happens in part three of the novel. So let's see what happens in part three. So in section three or chapter three of the novel, Marlowe, along with the station manager and parts of the El Dorado Exploration Company, finally gets the boat working. He has a native crew and one of them is trained as uh, the engine helmsman and the other one to watch the steam engine. So they ply upwards and this is when we get all the dark images of Africa itself, right? Every vocabulary, every adjective is brooding and dark and menacing and that's what creates the aura of going up the river, right? And of course, the journey is treacherous because this is a wild river. And finally, there is one place where they stop and there is a firewood and there is, you know, a note for them. And they know that there is one rogue person roaming the whole territory. He's called the Russian. And everyone is after him because he's not a company employee, but this is his cabin. And that's where Marlowe finds a book. And uh, you will see Marlowe's comments about it because there were copious notes in the book, which are in Russian, but Marlowe thinks that it's in cipher, it's in code. But Marlowe admires that because he sees that as, you know, a person's attempt at maintaining their sanity by reading a book carefully. The book is about how to, you know, navigate the ocean. It's a naval officer's book. But from there, they move inwards when they reach closer to where Kurtz is supposed to be. And that's where 
they get shot at not guns but arrows and they have to stop and finally they you know go ashore and retrieve kurtz as they retrieve kurtz that's when marlo describes what kurtz has done he lives in a hut around his hut are these spikes upon which are the heads of natives right and he meets the russian and the russian has become an acolyte of kurtz he loves kurtz and he's the one who gives us the information about what kurtz has been doing so what we learn is that kurtz had declared himself the chief of the area he had his loyalists from the, amongst the natives and he had been raiding the villages for ivory right but in the process he had also taken up the persona of this chief and he was meeting out corporal punishment and that is what we are told we are supposed to read that africa is the backdrop right and uh, for unraveling of a european mind and that's what a lot of people like us challenge right so they retrieve kurtz and you know kurtz dies and before he dies he asks marlow to promise him that he will return his personal belongings to his fiance and the last two words of kurtz are the horror the horror which everyone has been trying to interpret there is another scene in this section which is quite instructive and that is the scene of the woman who's represented who probably was kurtz's you know lover and she's silent but she's regal and that's how marlowe represents her but she's offered as this larger than life figure part of nature right less human more probably animalistic and that is another way because we can juxtapose this woman who has no voice who doesn't speak to curtis's conversation with the european woman and i mean marlowe's conversation with curtis's fiance later towards the end of the novel so that's another staging of an african identity another thing that throughout this voyage has been told to us through marlowe is the the frenzied masses in the jungle who are menacing the sound of the drums all of that is offered as part of the jungle as dark as menacing as as you know threatening and dangerous and then after kurtz dies we find ourselves back in london where marlowe has been withholding materials not giving them to the company and finally the last scene where he takes the letters to the fiance and meets her and when she asks him what were his last words he lies and says well it was about you right and he says you know he acknowledges that that's a lie but she had asked him give me something to live by so that's where the novel ends and then the actual ending of the novel is where marlow ends his story and then the main narrator comes on and tells us that ship is now going to move into the darkness of the ocean that's roughly the plot right and the character of kurtz i've already talked about him briefly but he is the main character and then of course marlow himself so that roughly should give you you know an understanding of the novel and its plot right and along with the background there are only two sentences attributed to the native characters one is mr kurtz he dead and two when another native dies 
the so-called um, cannibal native says, give him to us, we'll eat him. These are the only two sentences assigned to any African characters in the whole novel. Other than that, we don't know whether they can even speak or we are not made privy to their conversations or their thoughts. They are never represented to us as fully realized speaking human subjects. So in the next section, then I'll briefly talk about what is it, what kind of challenges have been posed to the novel and what is important to keep in mind as we read it and teach it from a post-colonial perspective. So as a post-colonialist, when I teach this novel or read this novel, of course, the first thing that I consider is how Africa is represented because in post-colonial studies, the question is pretty much always about representation. And there, uh, Chinua Achebe's famous 1975 speech also informs my reading of the novel and I do have an episode on it. You should listen to it. I also have a lecture on it on YouTube and you can watch it there as well. But the main thing is that Africa is either represented as a foil to Europe or as a backdrop in which Europeans go and do their things. Now, we all know that Africa has a rich history. It has traditional cultures everywhere, and none of those come across in the novel, right? So the novel then is kind of a quintessentially European story told from a European point of view about European experiences in which the Africans, by and large, serve a secondary purpose. And that's one of the biggest critiques of the novel, because if it calls itself a novel about Africa, about Congo, why is it that the Africans themselves have no say in that story? I mean, that's why Chinua Achebe went and wrote Things Fall Apart. He gives us an imperfect hero in Okonoko, but we meet living, breathing African characters in that novel, right? Who lived pretty much in the same region where Marlowe is traveling in this novel. So that's one way of critiquing the novel. Another way of critiquing the novel is as to what kind of an impact would it have on the minds of the students if they read it uncritically? What kind of idea of Africa would they internalize of its history, of its people, or Africa as a place? So if it is not taught critically enough, you know, people might read the novel and think of Africa as a menacing place, as a dangerous place, right? As a place where people do not speak, they have no agency, they have no voice. And that is another danger in a novel if taught uncritically. And so as post-colonialists, we point that out and we teach our students or encourage our students to learn more about the culture of Africa, about specific cultures of Africa where the stories are set. And another thing that I point out in my classes, and I have another episode on it, is to is the inherent, both latent and manifest racism of the novel. I mean, the views that are expressed about Africans, about African space and people in the novel are, of course, deeply racist. And we cannot just forgive Conrad for having those views as maybe through the 
voice of Marlowe or that these were the views people had of Africa during those times. We have to confront those racist views because if we don't, then the novel has the power of normalizing those racist views of Africa. So I teach the novel as an example of literary racism. What do I mean by that? But racism that is stylized to a point where it becomes part of a narrative, part of a story. So that would be another thing that you need to focus on or can focus on while reading the novel and while, you know, teaching it. So these are some of my thoughts. Another thing maybe which would be a good thing to analyze is the juxtaposition of two female characters. On one hand is the European woman who needs to be protected from the truth, but who at least speaks for herself, right? Even though her destiny is now going to be connected to the memory of a dead man. And on the other hand is the African woman who is regal, but represented as part of nature and has no voice. And we have to juxtapose the two to see what kind of, of womanhood does the novel represent. Another thing to keep in mind is the way just nature is represented in the novel. If you go from an eco-critical point of view, nature is represented as dangerous, as threatening, as menacing. And if we incorporate that idea of nature, what does it do to our consciousness? Chances are, if we, if we internalize that view of nature itself, of wilderness itself, then we're not going to go out of our way to protect nature. Right? then we will think, oh, you know, bulldozing jungles and building roads is rather a better project. So it's the novel also maybe encourages us to think differently about nature, not the novel, but how nature is represented. And that's not how we ought to think about nature and about, you know, wild or wilderness. So these are some of my thoughts about the novel. I highly recommend that you should read up more about the scramble for Africa, about how colonialism worked in other places, also about the peculiarity of Congo. Now, thankfully, I think in 1904, the casement report comes out, which indicts the actions of the king and his administrators. And then eventually, the Belgian parliament takes Congo away from the king and starts administering it through the parliament. And a lot of reform takes place. But if you look at the history of Congo, it was one of the most brutal instances of colonialism and where, you know, brutal punishments were given to the natives. And I would highly encourage you to read up more about that and to always keep in mind that this was not just a mere act of imagination, that Conrad actually went there, took notes, and then wrote this novel. So nothing in this novel is accidental, right? It is highly intentional. And that is why when Chenua Achebe calls Conrad a racist, he has a point because what he's saying is, you went there, you did your research and then you chose to represent Congo in this way. You made a choice as an author. 
right? And so keep that in mind. And please, please, if you teach the novel, teach it alongside things fall apart. And if you can't teach things fall apart, at least incorporate Chinua Achebe's indictment of the novel, criticism of the novel, which is easily available online. And you can read it and help your students read it and maybe they will then perform a more informed reading of the novel. So that's all I have. I know this is not all exhaustive, but I hope there were a few new things that you learned from this or at least it encourages you to read the novel more carefully. If that happens, I will consider my job done. I will now be back with, you know, a talk or a conversation on some other topic pretty soon. Until then, please take care of yourself. Thank you for your support. I will see you next time. And as always, peace and love.